is always exciting for us to gather in this bricks and mortar building to hear the word of our cornerstone, of our head, Christ. Let's pray as we open his word once more. Father in heaven, I am asking that in your pleasure you would do two things this morning. First, to come by your spirit, dwell richly, and show us our poverty of spirit. And secondly, to show us your son and the treasure, the precious treasure that he is. These two things I pray, Lord, I ask in faith that you would do. Come alongside us, dwell richly in our midst, uh, give us insight and give us alertness, I pray, as we go through your word now, in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has ascended up the mountain, and he's taken a seated position, And not only have his disciples gathered around him, the crowds have as well, according to chapter 7, verse 28. And now Jesus opens his mouth to teach. And the first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the Sermon on the Mount is a rapid-fire series of what most of us call Beatitudes. There are... Eight or nine Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, depending on how you want to count them. The word Beatitude, along with other English words like beatific and beatify and beatification, all those words arose in the English language at some point between the 12th and 7th centuries, and all those words are derived from the Latin word beatus. Beatus means blessed or blessed. But you'll notice in your bulletin today that I have decided not to title this sermon Beatitude Number 1, The Poor in Spirit, but instead I opted for Makarios, number one, the poor in spirit. And I plan on giving you an explanation of that choice as we progress here this morning. For starters, though, just a show of hands, how many here have ever had the opportunity of hand plowing a field? Taking a hold of a plowing implement, I don't see many hands going up, a few Taking hold of a plowing implement and driving a furrow into the soil, or at least, if not that, at least have you been in a garden with your little trowel digging in the soil? Okay, a few more hands are going up now. Well, there's an author named Servais uh, Pinkers. I think I have that right. He encourages you and I to think as we ponder these Makarios statements, these beatitudes that Jesus gives at the beginning of his sermon, he encourages us to think of ourselves in terms of a field whose soil needs to be broken up. I want to read you the quote from Pinkayers because I think it's a wonderful read of the beatitudes. Pinkayers says this, We can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plow in the fields. 
Drawn along with determination, it drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soil. It cuts through us with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes. It overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires, and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God, All this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. Close quote. I think that's a fantastic read of the Beatitudes. As we're going to see shortly, Jesus intends to break up the soil in us. He intends with his Beatitudes to startle us. He intends in his Beatitudes to cause us to put everything in our lives under review. In his redemptive program, he intends to bring into question the settled arrangements of my world and of your world. Now, last week we pointed out and we illustrated that a major concern for the gospel writer Matthew in the first four chapters of his gospel and into the fifth chapter is to show us that Jesus is the new Moses, the new lawgiver, redeemer, deliverer, who has come to lead the new exodus that the Old Testament prophets prophesied. This concern of Matthew's seems to extend right into the Beatitudes. It's true, isn't it? that the last words someone says before they die can often ring out in importance and in gravity. And those deathbed words can often have about them a certain memorableness. Moses was the greatest of prophets to the Jews in the time of Jesus. And the very last words, the very last words that Moses spoke before he died are recorded for us in Deuteronomy 33, 29. His last words, friends, were a beatitude. The last thing Moses said was a beatitude. He said, happy are you, O Israel, or in the New American Standard Bible, blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph? Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. Those are the last recorded words of Moses and Jesus is the new Moses. As Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, it's like he's picking up right where Moses left off. Blessed are, because Jesus is the new Moses. And Moses ended his days with a blessed are you 
statements. Now, as we read Matthew 5.3, and I hope you have your Bible open, as we read Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have to spend some time with the very first word, blessed. And I want you to listen carefully here, because although this next part might prove a little heady, I think it's essential to talk through this if we are going to interpret the Beatitudes properly. So in the original Greek of Matthew 5.3, the first word that Jesus speaks is the word makarioi, which is a form of the word makarios. And I've titled this sermon, Makarios Number 1, The Poor in Spirit. Jesus says here, Makarios are the poor in spirit. Now, most usually, in our English Bibles, the rendering will be blessed. Blessed is how the vast majority of English Bibles render the Greek word makarios. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, etc. Increasingly, however... Bible scholars are questioning with good reason whether blessed is in fact the best translation of the original Greek makarios. And so a number of suggestions have been put forth as to what might be perhaps a better translation into English of that word. So, for example, some have argued for the word happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on and so forth. Others have preferred the word fortunate instead of the word blessed or happy. Fortunate are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Still others have suggested to be congratulated are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, etc., I noticed in one of my commentaries that the writer Glenn Stassen goes with joyful instead of blessed. Joyful are the persecuted. Joyful are the merciful, etc. Friends, I think we have to try our best to get this right. Listen, the problem with using the word Blessed, as a translation at the beginning of each beatitude, is that the word blessed is too loaded up with the idea of active divine favor, and that's not quite the flavor or the sense of the Greek word, the Koine Greek word, makarios. I want to say that again slowly. The problem with using the word blessed as a translation at the beginning of each beatitude is that the word blessed is too loaded up with the idea of active divine favor, and that's not quite the flavor or the sense of the Greek word makarios. The Beatitudes are not really about God conferring blessing in an active sense on certain types of people because of the way those people are. 
In Jonathan Pennington's excellent recent book on the Sermon on the Mount, he spends considerable time discussing both the Hebrew background and the Greco-Roman flavor of the word makarios, and I won't bore you with the details, but Pennington's conclusion is that what the word makarios is describing in the context of Matthew is not so much the active favor of God, which is what blessed conveys, but rather this word makarios is describing a state or a condition of flourishing. It is describing a state or a condition of flourishing. It's like Jesus is a tour guide and he's pointing to people who are, for example, poor in spirit and he's saying they are flourishing. He's drawing attention to those who mourn and he's saying they are flourishing. He's looking at those who are meek and he's declaring they are flourishing. The Beatitudes are then descriptions of states of human flourishing. Again, the Beatitudes are then descriptions of states of human flourishing. And so Pennington goes with the word flourishing as a translation for each beatitude. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are the pure in heart, etc. Although he realizes that even that word flourishing is not an exactly perfect translation of the Greek. No English word really is. But again, friends, the idea seems to be that in the Beatitudes, Jesus is describing what true human flourishing looks like. He is proclaiming the shape of human well-being in the kingdom, the kingdom that has come in him and the kingdom that is yet to come in him. Well, I've been convinced by Pennington's arguments, and so I want to adopt the word flourishing as we go through these sayings in Matthew 5, 3 through 5, 11. According to Jesus in our verse in Matthew 5, 3, According to Jesus, who we said last week has all authority in heaven and on earth, according to Jesus, who is himself God incarnate talking to us on this mountain, according to Jesus, who indisputably has the right and the wisdom and the divine authority to tell us who is flourishing and who is not. According to him, the poor in spirit are flourishing because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Makarios, flourishing, are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Now notice, won't you, let's just take, let's chew the cud here a little bit, like a cow of the field. Note the backwardness of this saying. Have you noticed it? Note, notice the paradoxical nature 
of this Makarios statement. Now, if I wrote the Bible, and we can thank God that I didn't write it, I might have something here like, flourishing are the put-together and the strong. Or flourishing are those who come from solid families and who now have their own trouble-free family. Or flourishing are those who do their best to obey all of God's commands. Or flourishing are the self-reliant a value we sure prize in our world, don't we? Self-reliance. Flourishing are the self-reliant, the self-confident, the self-assured. Aren't you glad that God didn't consult me when, when the Bible came into being? Jesus Christ, the authoritative God-man, tells us here that the kind of human being who flourishes in God's world, is the person who is poor in spirit. Jesus here says that the richest life is the life that is keenly aware of its own poverty. As a child growing up in the 1970s, before the advent of personal computers, many of you can't imagine that, I had seen many pictures and photos of bears in books. Bears in nature books, bears in storybooks, bears in the Encyclopedia Britannica, bears in magazines. Looking at a picture of a bear in a book or on this screen is a safe thing, isn't it? You don't have to worry about getting mauled by the bear that you're looking at in the picture. After all, it's just a photo. Well, one day, when I was about 19 years old, I was up in northern Alberta, and I was zooming along on an all-terrain vehicle all by myself down a cut line up in the Laclabish Forest. And I have to admit, I was 19, I was daydreaming just a little bit as I drove that long straightaway. I was looking just for a moment slightly off to my left. And then in my peripheral, in my right, I noticed something black. And I centered my vision and looked over, and there, about 20 feet ahead of my vehicle, is a black bear coming out of the bush, right onto the trail, where I was, and there's no room on that little trail to turn around. And to my horror, the sudden recognition flooded in that the particular ATV that I was driving had no reverse gear. <laughs> my fight-or-flight adrenaline kicked in, like you wouldn't imagine, and I, without really looking at the bear any further, I got off the machine and physically <laughs> humped it around, got it facing the other direction, fully expecting that on my back I was going to feel claws coming through my jean jacket and or grunting as the bear ran forward. Well, I bolted out of there, I looked back, the bear was long gone. 
I think the bear was just as scared of me <laughs> as I was of it. Well, I live that day to tell you this morning that seeing a bear in person in the middle of nowhere is a much different experience than looking at a bear in a library book. The point is, and here I'm borrowing from the Puritan John Flavel, a person can have a general idea about sin and the nature of sin, the concept of sin, what we might call the looking at a bear in a library book notion of sin. The Apostle Paul had such a notion in the days when he was a Pharisee studying under Gamaliel, sort of a speculative arm's length understanding of sin. But listen, friends. When the Holy Spirit of God invades your life, according to Jesus in John 16, verses 8 and 9, the Spirit comes to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When God by His Spirit brings home to you the true nature of your sinfulness and the depth of your sin problem and your poverty of spirit as you stand before His holiness, then, my friend, you will have what we can call the looking at the bear up close in the woods notion of sin. It will affect you in a dramatic way. It's the Spirit's work to magnify your sin and to shine His light on your guilt and your wretchedness in comparison to Him and His blazing righteousness and holiness. It's the Spirit's work to bring you face to face with the bear, so to speak. So that what? So that you will fall hard on His grace. And so that you will see Jesus as your highest conceivable treasure and your rescue. Is He your highest conceivable treasure and you know Him as your rescue every morning of every day of your life? It's the Spirit's work to cut you to the heart like He did with Peter's audience in Acts chapter 2 so that you will repent. And so that you will come to a place where you glory in nothing but the righteousness that comes from Him. He wants your exaltation to be in Him and His goodness. To boast only in His cross. This is to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit and thus flourishing is as Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it. Lloyd-Jones said, to be poor in spirit is to feel that before God we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to Him and in utter dependence upon Him and His grace and mercy. 
That's to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is, as Charles Quarles puts it, it is to trust God for salvation, to cry out for His grace, and to recognize His willingness to forgive. Hallelujah. To be poor in spirit is for me to see that even as a longtime church member and believer and pastor, that in myself I am just as disqualified from heaven as the worst unbelieving sinner out there that I can possibly conceive of. In myself. To be poor in spirit is to see your own righteousness as filthy rags. To be poor in spirit is, as Craig Blomberg puts it, to acknowledge your spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Christ. And this, says Jesus, is to flourish. This week I was reading volume two of Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology. In one section, Hodge points out that, quote, now this is just so un-Joel Osteen. (laughs) Hodge says, the Bible uniformly represents people in their natural state since the fall as blind, deaf, and spiritually dead from which state they can no more deliver themselves than one born blind can open his eyes or one corrupting or decaying in the grave can restore himself to life. Yes, indeed, that is what the Bible teaches. And to be poor in spirit is to tremble at that word of God. Isaiah 66, 2. To be be poor in spirit is to see, as we stand before him, that Jesus the Son is our only remedy. Isaiah the prophet was undone, wasn't he, as he stood before the holiness of God. And what did he cry? He cried, I am a man of unclean lips when he was faced with the holiness of Almighty God. That is to be poor in spirit. When confronted by the majesty of Jesus, Peter lamented and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That is a display of poverty of of spirit. The tax collector cried to God with his head down, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is to be poor of spirit. The Apostle Paul, in the years after his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road, came to see that he had zero righteousness of his own. Philippians 3.9. That, too, is being poor in spirit. Flourishing are the poor in spirit, says Jesus. Flourishing, burgeoning are people who have met the bear of their sinfulness face to face and have been terrified there to see Jesus as precious, to see Jesus as the diamond they need when all they have are handfuls of dirt. 
And friend, when you get desperate with an acute sense of your spiritual poverty in the presence of God, he will not turn away from your desperation. His grace is gigantic. Amen? Amen. And that grace is the bosom, the bosom that you will collapse into when you come to the end of yourself. When you finish with your own attempts to make yourself right with God. So the Lord of the universe, who has the right to tell us who is flourishing and who is not, declares to you this morning, flourishing are the poor in spirit. And the reason, notice, the reason that the poor in spirit are flourishing, according to Jesus in the second half of the verse now, is because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I think that translating the Greek here with the word because... Instead of the word for, F-O-R, is more helpful, and it certainly is allowable and viable as a translation here. So flourishing are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jonathan Pennington is very helpful here. He says, quote, the reason, the reason Jesus can boldly claim that the poor in spirit are truly flourishing is Because, despite appearances, these lowly ones are actually possessors and citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. It's not the (laughs) self-reliant. I've been there, personally. I struggle with it every day. It's not the self-reliant. Self-confident, the self-assured who are the possessors and citizens of God's kingdom. It's the poor in spirit. Theirs, and the word theirs is emphatic in the Greek text. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the very flourishing of the poor in spirit is found in the fact that they are citizens and possessors of the kingdom. Now what kind of kingdom is it that Jesus means here? What are the contours of this kingdom that he talks about here that the poor in spirit are citizens of and that the poor in spirit possess? What is this kingdom that causes them to flourish? Well, with the wider revelation of Scripture in view, we can make several observations concerning the kingdom of heaven. The primary meaning of this phrase, kingdom of heaven and or kingdom of God, In scripture, the primary meaning is the kingly reign, R-E-I-G-N. The kingly reign or the kingly rule of God. The phrase, the kingdom of heaven, refers to the kingly reign or the kingly rule of God. The kingdom of heaven is not so much a realm as it is a rule. When we see this phrase, kingdom of heaven, in Matthew 5.3, the primary thought is divine kingly authority. 
The poor in spirit are flourishing because they live under the kingly reign, the benevolent rule of God. And this rule, this reign, this kingdom, according to the New Testament, listen, is both now and it is not yet. It is now and it is not yet. Or perhaps a better way to put it would be this kingdom is now, but it's not fully yet. So let's start with the first part. The kingdom is now. It is already present. Yes? When Jesus arrived on the scene in the flesh in the first century Middle East, he himself was the embodiment, the embodiment of the kingly rule of God. There is a definite sense in which Jesus brings the kingdom, but he also is himself the embodiment of the kingdom. And so Jesus comes along and he can say things like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4.17, Mark 1.15, or Matthew 12.28, Jesus says, if by the spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the divine authority of God has come upon you. So there is a presentness of the kingdom, a presentness of the kingly rule of God that has come with the incarnation of Jesus. And because Jesus is risen, that presence of the kingdom is our experience, is it not? Colossians 1.13, as believers who are poor in spirit, we already have been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom is a present reality for us as believers. But the kingdom is also future, according to the Bible. The kingdom is now, yes, but it is not yet fully. In this very Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will have us pray, your kingdom, what? Come. The kingdom in its full measure is still future. The prophet Isaiah spoke of the king in the lineage of David ruling over a kingdom where wolves would hang out with lambs and where leopards and goats would be chillaxing together and where toddlers still in their diapers are playing freely over holes where cobras live. That kingdom has not yet manifested itself, has it, with those details? It is future. It is not yet. So to sum up, what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven refers primarily to the kingly rule of God. And his rule, his kingdom, is now, but it is not yet fully. In Matthew 5.3, Jesus says then, Flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are the ones who acknowledge their destitution and poverty as they stand before a righteous and holy God. Flourishing are the ones who have thrown up their white flag and who are no longer in revolt against God trusting only in themselves as they had been. 
flourishing are those who have seen all their righteousness as filthy rags and who have leaned hard on the treasure who is Jesus. For theirs is the rule. Theirs is the benevolent kingly reign of God now over their lives and theirs will be the full reign of God over them eternally in God's future. What a way to begin his sermon. I mean, preachers far and wide learn from this intro. <laughs> this is an, He leads us first, right off the bat, to see and to grasp our poverty of spirit for our own benefit and for his glory. Well, as we close today, I want to address, very briefly, I want to address two groups of people who may be listening. First, to the actual born-again believer in Jesus, to the one who's not just playing church, to the one in whom the Spirit of God has worked, showing you your poverty of spirit, to have you then run to Jesus Christ and his grace, I want to say to you, seek to maintain this sense of your empty spiritual bank account. Seek to keep a keen awareness of your poverty of spirit. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by regular, sober exposure to the Word of God. See in His Word that he expects of you a stringent, consistent holiness, justice, and righteousness that you on your own can never fulfill. And see in his word that Jesus Christ has fulfilled it for you. Amen? And in that realization, glory evermore not in your own righteousness, but in his righteousness that he puts on your account by his grace. Secondly, to the one who has not yet come to trust Jesus, and there may be someone here who hasn't, you haven't come to to trust him as Savior and as Lord, I hope you heard his word to you this morning. Flourishing as a human being means being poor in spirit, coming to the end of your inappropriate self-assurance. Inappropriate before God. And falling hard on the grace of God that he gives in Jesus the kingdom bringer. I want to read you a brief quote from the Puritan Thomas Watson. He once wrote this. When the soul goes out of itself and centers upon the rock, on Christ. Now it is firmly settled upon its basis. This is the way to comfort, and then he says this, you will be wounded in spirit till you come to be poor in spirit. And so I say to you this morning as we close, look to Jesus when you despair of your poverty of spirit and there find grace and new life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, we thank you for your son and his Sermon on the Mount and this opening salvo that he aims and directs right at our hearts and minds for redemptive purposes. Lord, I pray, as we have prayed in times past, that you would disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed through this series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, that your Holy Spirit ultimately would convict and teach and bring help and encouragement and whatever it is that your pleasure is to do. And Father, help us over coming weeks and months to listen well uh, to what you are saying to your church. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now let us go from here as Christ's disciples, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following our Lord in resurrection life. Amen.